Welcome to Council 4 Unplugged, the podcast of our AFSCME Council 4 Union. I'm Renee Hamill with Council 4, and we are so proud to represent 30,000 dedicated public and private sector members across Connecticut. We are in a budget year, and as the time to pass a budget nears, it is also a time unlike any other since we're in a pandemic, which brings a lot of economic uncertainty and fallout for working and middle-class families. We have two guests here to talk about a report that they authored called Austerity Versus Reinvestment, a Roadmap for a Broad-Based Connecticut Economic Recovery. So with us is Jennifer Klein. She's a professor of history at Yale University. Thank you for being with us, Jennifer. Good morning. Thank you for having me for this discussion. And Cher Habibi, Policy and Research Director for In the Public Interest, which is a research and policy center on privatization and responsible contracting. We're so happy to have you here with us, Cher. Thank you so much for having me here today. And we're also going to hear from Ed Hawthorne later in the show, who is an AFSCME member and working with a coalition that is calling for greater investment in public services. So without further delay, I'm going to hand it over to my colleague and our political coordinator, Zach Levy. Hi, Sharon, Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer, this first question is for you. Uh, that in, the, in this report, what has it shown about the way Connecticut has budgeted in the last decade since the Great Recession up until now? First of all, it shows the way in which Connecticut has so much limited its ability to um, innovate and to move forward because its uh, its leaders have allowed themselves to be caught in this trap of austerity and severe budget cutting with the assumption that it somehow produces more benefits for a greater number of people. And in fact, the reverse has been the case since 2008. There have been severe budget cuts in Connecticut from public education, the university systems, to the Department of Transportation, Department of Labor, various kinds of uh, social services and care services, even um, the the Departments of Environmental uh, Protection. So what we've seen is a decline in the uh, quality of services and benefits that we have access to because there aren't enough people to be out there doing the inspections because the uh, job of taking care of roads and um, electrical grids have been privatized and bridges. And so, uh, and we also have to factor in the 20% of layoffs or 21% of layoffs that has hit the public sector workforce, the people whom we need to actually do these jobs. So I think our starting point is to see the way in which austerity is a script. It's a political script. And it's also a trap. Um, that tells us with rigid insistence that it's the only possible path to solvency, probity, and growth. And yet here we are a dozen years later, and none of the promised results have manifested. Thank you very much. I think that's uh, very informative and, and a very accurate portrayal of what our members have experienced in the budget cycles over the last uh, decade. 
Yeah. And um, the COVID pandemic um, is only just making things worse. Um, we're expected to see the increase between uh, the rich and the poor, this gap um, between them increase. Um, and already we've seen that Connecticut billionaires, their net worth has increased by $3.8 billion, while thousands of people are unemployed. When we think of economic inequality, we tend to think of it hurting the low and middle income earners. Um, I'd like to hear from you, Cher. How does income inequality hurt the entire state economy and our growth? Yeah, so I just, you know, I want to just really, you know, emphasize what you said is that between mid-March of last year and January, the end of January of this year, billionaires have increased their net worth by $3.8 billion. Um, that's a lot of money. And when you compare that to what is happening in, you know, working class families, and we detail some of this in report in our report about some of the latest census, you know, census data, um, there's, you know, substantial proportion of Connecticut residents that can't afford to pay their rent, that can't afford basic household expenses, that can't afford to, you know, adequately feed their children um, because they can't um, get the food that they need. Um, so you're seeing just stark differences. And I think that inequality, you know, makes it, um, you know, really difficult for ordinary residents to make ends meet. But it also negatively impacts the entire state economy. Um, research shows that inequality impedes economic growth. And one of the studies that we looked at from 2017 kind of looked at the dynamic of how this happens. And what the study found was that inequality transfers income from low and middle income households that spend their money on these basic necessities um, to higher income households with higher savings rates. And overall growth is impeded um, and as those consumer dollars are limited. And rising inequality in the US has slowed growth um, in kind of overall demand by an estimated two to four percentage points of GDP annually in recent years. So there's a lot of evidence that inequality not only hurts individuals and families trying to make ends meet, but it really does hurt overall economic growth. Uh, absolutely, and uh, one of the big uh, things we've seen in the lack of growth has also been uh, tightening of budgets and kind of uh, negotiations to make it harder for state employees to continue, which brings us to our next question, because in 2021, uh, there's a expected quote unquote retirement wave. Uh, and the state has recently awarded a contract to the Boston Consulting Group uh, to survey members and present a plan to the legislature about their recommendation. Now, at first glance, it appears this report is not meeting the moment and it's continuing the ideology of austerity that uh, Jennifer, you mentioned before. Uh, and, and not expanding services to the most vulnerable residents. It also uh, does not address any of the racial and economic inequality that is structurally uh, impeded by austerity budgets. Uh, what has been the outcome uh, of states that employed austerity rather than investment during the times of recovery like we're in now, uh, Sheriff, I'd like to uh, start off with that? Sure. Um, you know, I think that there was, there's a lot of research that looks at this very issue um, in the Great Recession period. 
And there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what happened to states in the Great Recession. Um, and, and many studies that have analyzed data from this period have found that states that employed austerity measures had slower economic growth. They had poorer outcomes, while states that increased public investments experienced better economic outcomes. Um, I will say that there is, you know, I'll, I'll just describe a couple of these studies that, and to be honest, there's a huge, you know, body of literature that, that comes to kind of consistent findings, but a couple of interesting ones. Um, one, of, one of them was from the Center for American Progress, which divided states into two groups, states that contracted spending and states that expanded spending. And what they found was that the group of states that, um, you know, that cut spending on average um, fared substantially worse with unemployment rates rising faster and higher than in states that expanded spending. Um, another study found that states that preserved or expanded their public sector wor workforce came out of the Great Recession with fewer overall job losses, fewer private sector job cuts, less growth in unemployment, and faster job growth during recovery. Um, so there's a big, you know, if we look at what happened during the Great Recession, there is a difference between the outcomes of states that cut versus the states that expanded. And I think that the bottom line here is that, um, you know, what the research really shows is that greater public investments, especially during times of economic downturn, are really the key to economic prosperity. Um, you know, in an economic downturn, increased government spending um, speeds up recovery by boosting demand and stimulating the economy, really kind of setting it on a positive trajectory toward um, long-term recovery. Um, and public investment drives broad and long-term economic growth that benefits everybody. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of bottom line is you got to, you know, resist the calls for austerity, we've really got to be um, putting our focus on calling for greater public investment. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, some of the, well, a lot of, about the cuts that you were talking about, we've seen that in Connecticut firsthand, um, especially within our Department of Labor. We've seen how cuts um, back in the day are influencing and impacting um, the ability to service people now during the pandemic. So I'd like to hear from you, Jennifer, um, what type of state services in Connecticut are starved that we don't have proper long-term funding for? Ever since 2008, first of all, uh, these kinds of cuts have um, been imposed on our public university system at all levels. The community colleges, the um, Connecticut state system and the University of Connecticut. Now, the bottom line is there is no strong economically secure working class or economically secure middle class without public institutions like these. So fees have gone up. Layoffs has, have occurred at these public universities. Classes have disappeared. Think about who goes to Southern Connecticut State University or Central Connecticut State University. These are often first-generation college students, the children of immigrants, women, people of color, and they become nurses, social workers, 
teachers, a lot of the teachers in New Haven have gone to Southern Connecticut. So um, they are actually taking on the job of social services that make our society thrive and then enable people to advance. So we cannot allow that system to shrivel. Secondly, UConn, as a powerhouse research university, again, this is what makes Connecticut's economy of the future dynamic. Why would you want to eliminate a powerhouse research university that not only attracts so many jobs, but opens up the technologies and ideas for the future? As for something like the Department of Labor, this is what's doing the enforcement job against things like wage theft and um, the lack of safety in the workplace and health problems in the workplace. OSHA at the federal level has so much cut back on that. And when we talk about the COVID epidemic, we know that there are particular workplaces that have been so threatening to people under COVID. This is precisely the time for us to have a Department of Labor. Another instance of um, actual privatization where we can see how it has produced not only no benefits for anyone, but um, very costly inefficiencies. We're often uh, told that uh, privatization is all about inefficiency, which frankly is just institutionally impossible because if you hand over a service to a profit-seeking enterprise, then its entire motivation is to find margin of profit, which by its very essence means it's going to cost more. And if there's no public oversight, it will cost even more. So um, in terms of home care services, which are, again, so vital for our present and future as our population ages, the payroll for care workers who are doing home care, um, their payroll service was contracted out. And so there are many care workers who have found that they have gone without paychecks for weeks or that their paychecks are short, they're undercounted. So then it becomes this huge struggle to track down where the money is, get the money paid. Now, where is the efficiency in that? And it damages people who until recently were among the most underpaid people in our state doing the <laughs> among the most important work caring for elders and family members and persons with disabilities but what also had made their lives improve was the fact that they had gained recognition as public workers doing a public service and unionization so let's add in that other critical element about public work is it provides people with a union, a collective bargaining contract with health insurance, pensions, paid time off, and all the benefits that come with unionization. And first of all, to speak as a historian, that kind of unionization has been the chief equalizer in American society over Uh, the last 60, 70 years. Secondly, it's been absolutely key for women and people of color. 
And so if you eliminate the kinds of human services, care work, um, uh, teaching, education, jobs that women tend to predominate in within the state, and you privatize them, that means most likely women will be pushed back into doing jobs that do not have union benefits and don't have anything close to a union wage. So in a year that Governor Lamont proclaimed as the year to really work on gender equity and advancement for women, this kind of austerity agenda completely undermines that programmatic agenda. I think that that's a, a, you know, what you were talking about at the end there, especially about the equity, is a really good uh, lead in to, to this next question, because uh, state employment is often a gateway for many women and people of color, uh, having access to retirement security, living wages and health care. Uh, and how would a shrinking state workforce through attrition, this expansion of public private partnerships and technological displacement harm Connecticut's economy, especially the women uh, and people of color that, that reside here? Uh, share this questions to you. I just want to echo, you know, what Jennifer said um, about privatization and, you know, we, it can be privatization can be the outsourcing of public services. It can be public private partnerships. Like you mentioned, Zach, um, it can be corporations kind of buying up, you know, public assets. There's kind of lots of different forms of privatization. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the things that Jennifer said that's really important is, look, these corporations, their goal is to maximize profits. Um, they do that by reducing operating costs. Reduce, one of the ways that they reduce operating costs is by taking formally public sector jobs that sustained family, that included health care and retire benefits, um, you know, that were, um, you know, that were union jobs and turning them into low wage jobs with no benefits that are no longer unionized. Um, and, and, you know, this is what happens in many service contracts when these jobs are transferred to the private sector. Um, and, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that when this happens, um, you know, Black workers are particularly impacted by this dynamic. Um, kind of overall in the U.S., um, approximately one in five Black workers holds jobs in government doing this really important work. Um, median wages earned by Black employees are significantly higher in the public sector than in other industries. And so when these, you know, when these jobs are outsourced, when, you know, the state enters into public-private partnerships, um, you know, many times these jobs are outsourced to companies that pay reduced wages, that don't pay benefits, um, potentially causing these families and communities of color to lose stable economic footing. Um, and that can have lasting, you know, impacts for generations. And I'll just say that this holds true for Connecticut state government as well. Um, in 2019, the Connecticut Office of Legislative Research looked at their state workforce. And what they found was that 18.5% of state employees in non-managerial positions 
identified as Black or African American, which was well above the 11.9% of the total state population who identified as Black or African American. Um, and so, you know, things like privatization and outsourcing and shrinking of the public sector is going to disproportionately impact, um, you know, people of color. That's absolutely right. And I wonder if I can just add a note um, in terms of uh, the people who are, um, uh, you know, using public institutions and that connection to economic growth um, and just give a very real world, like concrete example of what's playing out now because of this kind of um, austerity budget politics that Lamont is insisting is inevitable. So uh, there will be no additional money um, given to the New Haven public school system even though there simply is not the tax base in New Haven to maintain a decent school system locally. Um, Also because Yale owns all the most valuable property that's off the tax rolls. Um, Many of the new schools or new schools that were built over the last decade with state money as magnet schools in order to save money um, were built without things like libraries. So my kids attend a school that has no school library. But now, because of the lack of state support, uh, the mayor has also announced that there will have to be branches of the public library closed. So my children and a whole bunch of other, you know, kids in public school go to a school with no library. And our community branch library, Mitchell Library, um, would be closed. So not only does that deprive um, children and adults of the services of a public library, the access to books, the access to the internet, to ESL classes that are offered there, to um, job finding training things that are offered at the public library. But if you have a semi-literate generation, how does that help our future economy? It's just utterly unconstructive way of thinking. It's a very short-sighted way of thinking. And this is really the moment to open up the way that our political leaders think in terms of new, new solutions, new ways of moving forward, adaptiveness and resilience. Right. And a lot of the things that you said are very devastating for our communities um, and for our future. Some of the things that we hear from the business lobby in Connecticut um, when we talk about changing tax structure is that it's unfair to businesses, um, our state. And your report cites that Ernst & Young um, found that we are among the states with the lowest tax burden on businesses, not the highest is what some businesses say here. Would a progressive tax system benefit both businesses and working families in Connecticut? Absolutely. And here's where I think, again, it's important to um, think kind of uh, about the larger picture politically, because I think that what conservatives have done is they've kind of conflated all taxes as bad taxes, And so it's hard for people to separate out, for example, something that falls really hard on them as 
which is property taxes, from, say, uh, income taxes on higher income people and corporate taxes. And so I think if we could filter these out and say, well, look, if, you know, really wealthy people and corporations are not carrying their fair share of taxes, then what happens is it gets shifted onto you and me in the form of property tax, which which is tough. Um, and so we should be moving towards a progressive uh, tax system. And frankly, where are the billionaires going to go? Let's think. Are they going to go to New York? I think the taxes are higher. Are they going to go to Massachusetts? Are they going to go to New Jersey? Um, you know, there's there. Uh, I, uh, I I find you know the idea um, that they're going to you know flee to from Greenwich to uh, uh, Scarsdale pretty unrealistic. Or you know, from Darien to uh, to somewhere in New Jersey, unrealistic. But we'll have share uh, back us up with the numbers and the data. Um, but it also, I think, pushes us to ask the question um, uh, or to confront the question: Is it really that there's no money in Connecticut? It's not that there's no money. There is actually plenty of money here. And it's not that we're, quote, living in an age of austerity. We're actually living in an age of plenty. It's just that that plenty is very skewed towards a very, very small percentage of people. And so uh, there is money out there. And in fact, it's even being redistributed because when you privatize services and put it on the backs of uh, people who have to individually carry the risk that they can't, it, it causes redistribution to flow upward into the hands of wealthy people. And so it's time to really reverse that narrative and talk about how the state should be making the best use of the wealth that, in fact, is here. Right. Well said. So this max ex- mass exodus of millionaires and billionaires leaving our state, if anything changes to our tax structure, uh, is that fact or fiction? What do you think, Cher? Fiction. <laughs> um, I mean, what Jennifer said is right, and that the research bears that out. So um, you know, there have been kind of uh, kind of studies that have looked at all the literature in this area, looked at all the studies that have been done in this area, and they have, you know, in examining kind of all of those studies, research have found that, um, you know, there's income tax increases cause little or no interstate migration, quote, <laughs> little or no interstate migration. Um, also, there was a um, a few years ago, there was a study by the American Sociological Review. They also um, looked at tax return data for high income households over a 13 year period. And they also said that there is very little evidence that of migration caused by um, kind of millionaire tax hikes and those types of um, uh, those types of tax increases on like kind of ultra wealthy um, households. Um, and, you know, and I'll just echo what Jennifer said. I think there is this 
kind of this myth of scarcity um, and that we don't have enough resources to make these public investments. And it's just simply that is also fiction. It's just simply not true. And a, you know, a more progressive tax structure allows the state to actually have the revenues to make those public investments to have all the benefits that you know of public investments that are more broadly shared um, and can actually go a long way to setting a foundation for having a Connecticut that works for everybody. Um, so I just want to you know make sure, kind of going back to the big picture, that um, you know that's that scarcity is also fiction as well. Well, so- thank you both for setting the record straight for us. This has been such a great show. I want to thank Jennifer Klein and Cher Habibi. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I hope that we continue to have this conversation and that will enable us to really think about the absolute essential role that public services and the workers who make them a reality are going to play in all of our lives to meet the challenges of the 21st century. I completely agree. And thank you both for um, having us um, today on the program. Thank you. We'll be returning with Ed Hawthorne, member of Local 269, who'll be talking about their efforts to increase funding for services with the State Department of Labor. Thank you for listening, and we'll be right back after the break. Our next guest is Ed Hawthorne, who serves as vice president of Local 269, which represents workers at the Connecticut Department of Labor. He has worked with the Connecticut DOL for 10 years as an appeals referee, and he's also president of the Western Connecticut Area Labor Federation, AFL-CIO. Thanks for joining us, Ed. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, so in the first half of the podcast, we heard from Jennifer Klein, co-author of Austerity versus Reinvestment Report, who discussed that in the last dozen years since the Great Recession, 21% of workers in the public sector workforce were laid off. What kind of things have you seen regarding the impact this has had for the Connecticut Department of Labor and the services it delivers? So the Connecticut Department of Labor is actually split in two. We provide service for job seekers and also for the unemployed. So whether you are looking for a job or just recently lost your job, we're going to provide you with those services. What happened to the Department of Labor in 2015 is uh, we lacked uh, the required funding in order to keep our experts employed. So they laid off over 100 workers, closed multiple offices, and most importantly, it closed our call center. So there was, at the beginning of the pandemic, due to lack of funding and cutting funding back in 2015, we completely lost the ability to talk to people because for safety purposes, we had to close our doors. So I've seen what budget cuts do. Our commissioner always said before the pandemic even occurred that we weren't down to the bone. We were hitting the marrow when it comes to the amount of people we had. So not only were we, I guess, under staffed, but we were underfunded, which prevented us from being able to service the public uh, to the level that we wished to do at the beginning of the pandemic. Since then, we have, you know, kind of beefed up the staff, but a lot of them are only temporary workers. So our call center right now has zero, and I repeat, zero permanent employees. So what the plan is, according to all the sources that I've talked to, is for this call center to be temporary. 
For me, it's all about access. And if you're going to close offices throughout the state and close a call center at the same time, people are going to lack access and not be able to get through. I don't know about everyone else listening to this, but when I call someone, I want to talk to a person, not a machine. And um, especially when you're just out of work and maybe you've never been out of work before, you want to get somebody on the phone. You don't want to go through 45 prompts and then get a call back later on. And without the proper funding, without the proper support from the state, uh, we're not going to be able to proper properly serve the community that we care so much about. I think he answered the uh, part two as well, Renee, if you just want to kick into the next one. Sure. So, um, Cher Habibi, she uh, mentioned in the last segment that we have this myth that there is a scarcity of resources in Connecticut to make public investments, but that a more progressive tax structure can allow the state to increase revenue and therefore provide more investment to public services. Council 4 is part of the Recovery for All Connecticut, which is a statewide coalition that focuses on eliminating extreme inequalities and building a more just Connecticut. Uh, creating a f- fair, more fair tax structure is one of their goals. So I'd like to hear from you. Um, tell us about why you think this is critical, not only to those who rely on state services, but also to public sector workers and the future of our state economy. So the tax structure in Connecticut is almost backwards. I mean, if you look at all the taxes we pay as you know working people, everyone probably listening to this and everyone that's uh, currently uh, talking on this podcast, we're all middle-class folks that punch a time clock and go to work every day. The folks that have what I call passive income are the people that collect work off or collect money off of other people's work through stock dividends and uh, capital gains and things such as that. So it's almost backwards that we're actually, our tax structure currently is reporting people that don't actually work, but that profit from other people's work. So in order to properly fund our front lines and get the services that we all need and that, you know, those even less fortunate than us depend on, we need to fundamentally change our tax structure to something much more progressive than it is now. There's no reason that I should be paying the same effective tax rate or even a higher effective tax rate than somebody that makes much more money than me that lives in a gated community on the Gold Coast and has no idea what the problems of Main Street are because they've never set foot on Main Street. They, you know, kind of set foot in their country club and that's about it. Uh, if we fail to fund the front lines, it's something that, that I go back to DOL because that's where I work, but that's something that uh, I, I care about, that we need to service those that are looking for work and that are less fortunate than us and need help to get back on their feet. And the only way to do that is through funding. Uh, I always... When I when I talk about revenue, I like to say that the middle class is easy to tax, and that's kind of taking the easy way out because we receive a paycheck every week or two weeks uh, normally. Whereas it's a little bit harder to pin down the people that pay on a quarterly basis that might you know pay through stock dividends or things like that. So I always say choose you know nothing worthwhile is ever easy. So I hope our legislator legislators and our governor are brave enough to go after the income that's a little bit harder to get, but that comes from the people that are more able to pay without actually feeling it at all. Right, uh, Myra Cruz, who's a member of your local, she was profiled in the report. She talked about some things that she would like to see. Um, with the DOL if there was more investment. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about what things, what greater investment in the Connecticut Department of Labor would do and, and how would that benefit residents? 
I come back to it's all about access. The, the more people we have, the more access the public will have to us. Uh, and you see a lot of the groups online are very frustrated that they can't get through to somebody. And trust me, my my members at AFSME Local 269 want to take every call. I've been working extra hours since the beginning of the pandemic, and I am statutorily exempt from receiving overtime pay, so I just get straight time. That's time away from my family. That's time away from doing things. And it's because I care and because I want to do it. And, you know, our, our failure to prepare and invest in advance of the unexpected happening has caused this problem. And we cannot do that again. The current governor's budget does just sees it as, you know, almost kicking the can down the road. Everything's fine. Let's just keep everything flat. And that is not what this pandemic has shown. This pandemic has shown that a failure to prepare will create an emergency. We have to prepare now. Now, uh, just uh, finishing up here is the local you're part of, uh, two, Local 269, is collaborating with Unidad Latina and Acción, or ULA, a community-based immigrant workers organization, on an event this month. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the focus and why it's important for public sector workers to join in solidarity with the clients uh, that you and the members at the Department of Labor serve? Well, it's absolutely necessary to uh, to partner with the community-based groups such as this. They, they came to us and they were concerned about uh, educating uh, the people that they serve about uh, work, like wage hours and uh, the rules behind that. Our wage and hour division does not have enough people to service all of the complaints that it brings in. It really doesn't. And it's a shame because our wage and hour division is a moneymaker. They bring in revenue well over what we pay them. And it, it never makes any sense to me that we don't get more of them because what they do is they catch the bad actors, the employers, and make them pay the money that's owed to people. And then they pay penalties on top of it. So they're bringing in much more revenue than we actually have to pay for them. And especially about this group in particular, I go back to 2015. In those budget cuts, they eliminated an entire class of workers. And what that class was, was interpreter clerks. There is not one interpreter clerk that is employed by CTDOL. We now depend on an outsource called Language Line in order to interpret any document that comes in or anyone that requires Spanish language services. If there's not somebody in the office who's not certified, that could help them. Or if they do not come in with a family member, that can help them as well. It all comes back to access. And without funding, People lack access, and this group has suffered enough, and they deserve the access to the services that their tax dollars go towards. Well, I think you really summed it up well, Ed, um, and you really focused on why it's so important for us to join together and attend an event like this. So um, the details about the event, the rally for a fully funded labor department, will be held Saturday, April 17th at noon. And it will be at the American Job Center in Hamden, which is located on 37 Marnay Street. We hope to see you there. I want to thank our guest, Ed Hawthorne. Thanks for joining us. And my co-host, Zach Levy. We also want to give a special shout out to our regular Unplugged host, Larry Dorman. We're sending you get well thoughts and wishing you good health and healing. And we miss you so much. Uh, Thank you for listening. I'm Renee Hamill at Council 4, and you have been Unplugged. Unplugged.